0: Hello friends, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Moats, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis Institute trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing the series on Nazarites and Knights with James Jordan that we began on episode 139 and 140. Here Jordan is going to go deep into the theology of Nazarites and begin to show us how this theology of hair and skull crushing and many other things are all over the Bible. We really hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and as always, thank you so much for listening.
1: We were talking about the Nazarite vow, and we talked about the flame aspect that the f- hair is put into the fire afterwards. We'll come back to all these things. We talked about the prohibition on alcohol, uh, which has to do with rest. Uh, the Nazarite does not enter into rest until he's finished his work or until he has fully matured in the glory that's supposed to grow out from him, which is the, probably the better way to put it. Uh, we're not talking about earning merits we are talking about hair that's growing out of somebody's head for a length of time until that time is finished. And then it's cut off. Okay, Uh, It's not exchanged for anything necessarily. It's cut off and brought to an end. It undergoes death. And we talked about grapes, the fact that uh, grapes were a sign of the land of the kingdom, And again, there is an exclusion from grapes and from the kingdom until this time has uh, come to its culmination. Uh, The third theme is the long hair theme down here at the bottom of page six, and I just copied stuff out of my book on Judges here, which I won't take the time to read because time is at a premium. The hair is referred to as the Nazir. I mean, that's just the separated thing is his hair. It's connected up with the untrimmed grapevines of Leviticus 27. Uh, And then throughout the passage, which we read the other night, what is dedicated is his head. Uh, He has to dedicate his head. uh, Verse 9, if someone dies suddenly next to him, defiling the head of his separation, of his Naziration. He shaves his head. We're talking about a head that's consecrated. And we remember from Genesis three that Satan's head is to be crushed. And then, if we look in the book of Judges, which has to do with holy warfare, it's all about crushing heads. Um, Sisera's head is crushed by a woman. And Deborah prays, um, "May all who hate God, may all who love God, be like the rising of the sun in its might." That refers us back to Jacob, who came into the land. Limping on his thigh, but victorious over his enemies, just as the sun was coming up over the river. Well, head crushing continues in Judges, where another woman drops a stone on the head of Abimelech and crushes his head. And then when we get to Samson, Samson's got the long hair like a woman. Samson means sunrise, Shemesh, sun. He is the Uh, bridegroom who is like the sun, uh, mighty in its strength in Psalm 19. David is alluding back to Samson there when he talks about the mighty bridegroom who is like the sun. And Samson is a head crusher extraordinaire. I mean, at the end of his life particularly, he pulls down all these stones and he crushes the five kings or heads of the Philistine cities and all of their generals and all of their priests and all of the most important aristocracy. And of course, it's immediately after that that Samson blows the trumpet and brings about the victory against the Philistines for another generation. Samson's death uh, is resurrected in the victory in Samuel, another Nazarite. But here we begin to see the the association of the dedicated head with the crushing of the head of the enemy. And that's in the background of it. Eventually, Jesus, as Nazarite, will be suspended with his feet over Golgotha, which means what? Goliath of Gath, the place of the skull. And Jesus is up with his feet crushing, symbolically, Goliath's head, crushing the serpent's head on Golgotha, Goliath of Gath. Okay, the place of the skull. Whose skull? Goliath's skull is where David put it. All right, so um, this is a lot of what this is. Nazarite is a holy warrior uh, par excellence. He's a head crusher extraordinaire. All right. So the grapevine is a symbol of the luxuriant fertility and bounty of God's land. Similarly, the hair on the head is a sign of life and power and glory, as we saw yesterday at some length uh, in that hairy talk. Um, the consecrated land produces grapevines and the consecrated head produces hair, a sign of man's works or really a a sign of the maturity. Again, we're not talking about clocking up merits here, but becoming a kind of person, growing up in character which has to do with works. At the last judgment, God doesn't judge us exclusively on the basis of Jesus' death, but on the basis of that, as it has matured into character, well, this is something that you know people didn't used to have a problem with, but now there's a big problem with it. But in Matthew 25, it says, you know, Jesus says some of you were kind to other people and you get to go to heaven, and some of you uh, ignored the uh, the suffering of others and you're going to go to hell. Well, does that just some kind of judgment according to works? No. It's a judgment according to the kind of character that's been formed by the Holy Spirit on the basis of faith. It all goes back to the cross. It all goes back to the Spirit. But at the same time, it's real. The Father really does approve of our actions if they are in Christ. Well, that's what this is. Okay, This hair has to do with that. Uh, as a sign that it was the power of the Spirit that produced long hair, life, and power... The Nazarite braided his hair into seven locks. And you will find that sevenfold power thing throughout the Bible. This long hair is a crown. The word Nazir is used for the crown worn by the high priest. Okay, that's important because there's a connection. There are a lot of connections between the Nazarite and the high priest. And that's, uh, we need to see that. And the word Nazir is used for the crown worn by the kings of Israel. These crowns set apart their wearers to a special task, a task of showing what man's labors are supposed to be, a task fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Just as a Nazarite cuts off his hair and offers it to God as a sign that his labors are ended, so the elders take off their crowns and cast them at the foot of God's throne in Revelation 4. Both the high priest and the king were crowned by anointing with oil, Leviticus 21.12, and that is called Nazir oil. So it's a crown. Oil flowing down over the hair is like this hair growing out. And it's a sign of the spirit and life. These crowns were for, were for life. Nazarite's crown could be temporary or lifelong. Okay. Now, continuing here on page 8, the new notes for the day. Because the woman's hair is the glory of her husband the outshining of her relationship to him, we can see the Nazarite also as a picture of the bride. And um, again, Burke talked about that a little bit yesterday. Especially in Judges, Samson is linked to the warrior bride-mother motif found in that book. And shaving the head can be linked to Deuteronomy 21, 10-14, where we have the instructions for the war bride. And I think maybe we should just hear that uh, for the parallels here. Because it's the same kind of idea. Cutting off an old glory and growing a new glory. Now here, it's pagan glory that's cut off so the woman can grow a new glory within the covenant. In the case of the Nazarite, the idea, there's a certain preliminary glory in the Adamic world that needs to come to an end and then there's a new creation and new hair comes into that. So... The fullness of the Nazarite vow comes with Jesus who brings the entire first history to its culmination, dies so that His hair is cut off, and then is resurrected to start the new growth in the new creation. And it occurs to me to make the point that we've discussed before that in the Great Tribulation it seems as if almost all of the people who knew a whole lot about the Bible were killed. When you get to the immediate post-apostolic church, you find that the early apostolic fathers are incredibly ignorant of the Bible. The epistle of Barnabas is just bizarre. Uh, And you think, how could Barnabas, how could anybody have written this book if he had learned anything from Paul or John or Peter or Timothy or anybody who was around at that time? Any Jew or God-fearer would have told him that all kinds of stuff he has in that epistle are wrong. But I think that there was a tremendous harvest of the apostolic church and the church had to almost start over, almost as if your head was shaved and you have to start growing it again. I think there's something of a fulfillment of that motif there and I think in the book of Revelation it indicates that where it says that the 144,000 who represent the apostolic church which was murdered in the Great Tribulation, that they are all virgins, uh, they are all in some sense Nazarites to God. In fact, it says, with reference to the Nazarites, here we are, the harvest of the first fruit church, And the end of the old creation, it says, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's in AD 70. And who were beheaded? Nazarites. When you shave your hair off, that means being beheaded. That's what it signifies. Just like being circumcised signifies castration. All right? You all know that, right? That's what it means. Okay, you just don't have to do it. Shaving your hair off signifies having your head cut off. We know that because that's what happened to John the Baptist. Okay, there's the fullness of it right there. His head was taken off. And now it says, all those who did not worship the beast or his image in that apostolic church time, they're all like Nazarites, their heads were taken off. And that indicates to me that there is this sort of shaving off of the church and it starts again almost from fresh in the year 71. Well, boy, that I didn't even plan to talk about that, but things occur to you and so, hey. So Deuteronomy twenty one ten to 14 When you go out to battle against your enemies and Yahweh your God delivers them into your hands and you take them away captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and have a desire for her and would take her as a wife for yourself, then you bring her home to your house, and she shall shave her head and trim her nails. Do her nails, it says. That means the same thing. She shall remove the clothes of her captivity and remain in your house and mourn her father, mother a full month. And after that, you go into her and be your husband, and she shall be your wife. And it will come to pass, if you're not pleased with her, then you can let her go wherever she wishes. You, you shall not sell her for money. You shall not mistreat her because you have humbled her. Okay, she gets to go free. Well, we don't, won't go into all that, but notice she shaves her hair, cuts off her nails. All the glory things that grow out from your body are taken off, including all of her old clothes. So she gets new clothes in the kingdom. That's, that's the same motif as what's happening to the Nazarite. The old glory, which in this case is good, is taken off, given to God And then something new will start as a transition from old to new. Now what about the head motif? I've said that the hair grows out of the head and it's actually the head that's dedicated. And in a sense, it's the head that's cut off at the end. Genesis 3.15, of course, tells us that Satan's head is going to be crushed by the Messiah. Samson and the judges are head crushers. Um, Samuel is a Nazarite. And he kills King Agag, who is the head of the Amalekites. Remember, he cuts him into pieces. We have a reference to heads in this case of Elisha. Elisha is a Nazarite. And when we read the story of the son of the Shunammite in 2 Kings 4.19, remember what happened to him. We would call it sunstroke. When the child was grown, this is the miraculous child that was given to the Shunammite uh, by Elisha, uh, by the Lord through Elisha. When the child was grown, the day came that he went out to his father to the reapers, and he said to my to his father, "My head, my head." And he said to his servant, "Carry him to his mother." And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, she sat on his lap on his knees until noon, and then he died. And then Elisha is used by God to bring him back to life again. Okay, so there's this association with the head, and in this case, restoring someone struck on the head who should not have been. You mentioned Jesus crushing Goliath's feet head on Golgotha. And then uh, Romans 16.20. There's a lot of Nazarite stuff in Paul. Paul apparently twice takes the Nazarite vow. And what does he say in Romans 16.20? Yeah, my God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. So, uh, there's the crushing of the head motif there in the church. And as I said um, last time, there's a sense in which baptism makes us all neo-Nazirites now. We're in Christ. Uh, and Christ is Christ's victor, and so, so are we. Uh, and we are out crushing Satan's head. Well, uh, an F... Another aspect of these laws is death. The Nazarite is not allowed to go into the room with a corpse, even of his closest relatives. Leviticus 21.11 gives the same rule for the high priest, palace servant. Um, Leviticus 21.11 says, "...regarding the priest who is highest among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured, who has been Nazarited to wear the garments... He shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any dead person, nor defile himself even for his father and his mother. Okay? He can't go into the same room with a dead human body. This doesn't mean animal carcasses. You become unclean if you're around animal carcasses. Now let me ask you something. If if you find a dead sheep out in the field, and you've got to bury it, So you pick it up and drag it over here and you dig a hole and you bury it. You're going to become unclean because you have touched an animal carcass that died by itself. Right? And you will have to wash yourself and your garments and wait till the evening sacrifice and then you'll be clean. Leviticus 11. If you take that sheep when it's alive and you kill it and you pour the blood out and you eat it for dinner, does that make you unclean? No. The priests don't become unclean when they kill animals. Only if you come in contact with an animal that's already dead. In the same way, Samson does not become unclean when he kills the enemy. You only become unclean if you come in contact with a human corpse that's already dead. Okay? But you are not allowed as a Nazarite. See, ordinarily we could go into the room and mourn for somebody who's dead. We'd just be unclean for a week. We'd be washed on the third and seventh day. Numbers 19, two resurrections. Okay, but the Nazarite is not allowed to do that. Nor is the high priest. Same rule. Secondly, his period of time as a Nazarite is defiled or canceled if someone dies near him. Well, that's totally different from anybody else. If you're out in the field and you're walking along talking to a guy and he just suddenly drops dead next to you, that's it. Even if you're not in the same room, enclosed space, and even if you didn't touch him. And Leviticus 21:11 gives the rule the same rule for the high priest. He shall not come near a dead person. So if the high priest walking by the road and there's a man that's dead over there, he has to give him a wide berth. Now this comes up in the parable of the Good Samaritan. See, the man who's almost dead is there, and his ordinary priest and this ordinary Levite give him a wide berth. Well, this rule did not apply to them. They should have gone over and helped. The high priest would have been required to stay away from him in case he was dead. That was a law. It wasn't a law for the priest and the Levite. They were just taking advantage of their situation to avoid responsibility. okay. But the high priest would have been required to, to put some distance. Ordinary people, you could okay? get near and even touch. Not the high priest and not the Nazarite. And if that happens, the Nazarite vow is canceled and he has to start over again. Number three, since the Nazarite is a holy water, killing someone does not defile him, only if someone suddenly dies near him. Now the great example of this in the Bible is Elijah and Elisha. Okay, Elisha is bald because he has shaved his head, because somebody died next to him. That's the whole theology of the passage there. And we'll, uh, hopefully we can spend a few minutes looking at that. But all the paintings in the museums that show Elisha having male pattern baldness, a little fringe of hair back here. That's Elisha, and that's the icon of Elisha. So if you go to a museum and there's, a, there's a, a prophet there, and he's bald and got a little fringe of hair here, that's Elisha, but that's a mistake. Okay, That's a misinterpretation. Elisha did not have male pattern baldness. Elisha had shaved off all this long hair that he had. He had seven locks of hair. But he had to shave it all off and start up again because Elijah had just died next to him. What is the basic meaning of the Nazarite vow? Well, it's very large and complex. Uh, It's got all these kinds of things in it. But I think we can say these things. Number one, it shows the fulfillment of the Adamic calling. We are to mature in glory or hair, not earning merits by works. Adam wasn't supposed to earn stuff and income to God and change it in. He was supposed to grow up and be old enough to be given new responsibilities. See? Every year on your birthday, you get something new. Not because you earned it, you know. When you're six years old, five years old, four years old, your folks give you on your birthday a bicycle with training wheels on it. Well, is that because you earned it? No, it's because you're old enough to have a bike, okay? And you're old enough to have a driver's license when you're 17, not because you earned it, but because you're old enough. Now, you can be disqualified from having it. If you grow grow up and you're such an irresponsible person that your parents aren't going to let you have a driver's license, you're disqualified from it. But if you get it, it's not because you earned it, but because you grew up and became mature enough for it the same way, the new covenant does not come because Jesus earned it, or we were supposed to earn it, but because we were mature enough for it. Adam made us disqualified for it. Jesus grows up and becomes, as it says in Galatians, the first grown up in history. In Christ we become mature, no longer children. Adam, Adam was also supposed to faithfully fight against the invading devils. And protect the church and protect the bride. Well, that's what the Nazarite does. He fights against the devils. First of all, the priests are almost Nazarites and they conduct the holy war in the sanctuary and then the Nazarites conduct the holy war in the land and in the world. Third, he must start over in the face of death. And this happens over and over again in history. The covenant starts up again. Okay? The Abrahamic covenant comes to an end and we come to the Mosaic covenant. And then it fails and we come to the kingdom covenant. And it fails and we come to the remnant covenant. Each one is more glorious than one before, but there's a certain shaving off and starting over because of death. Sin, death mean these things end. What happens? What ends the Mosaic covenant? It's in the early chapters of Samuel the death of the sons of the high priest. God kills them. And then Eli dies. And now the tabernacle's torn in half. The ark is over here. The rest of it's over here for a hundred years until the temple is built. You can't even have the sacrificial system. You can never have a day of atonement for a hundred years. Because on the day of atonement, you have to sprinkle the blood in the Holy of Holies and then take it out to the altar and put it out here. Well, for a hundred years, those things were 50 miles apart from each other. So you couldn't do it. Okay? So it's torn apart and dead, and then it comes to life again. Death, this death things, then resurrection, death means you have to start over again. And this happens over and over until Jesus finally comes and does it. The Nazareth, in a sense... The adamic Nazarite race never finishes it up because death keeps getting in the way. Finally, Jesus does it. D, page 9, He holds off from alcohol and from grapes because He's Adamic. He's pre-Noachic. He's pre-kingdom. There are no grapes in the Garden of Eden, are there? It's an orchard. Grapes are a vine. There were bananas, apples, persimmons, olives, fruit, but no grapes. It says the vines and plants of the field had not yet been made when God put Adam into the garden. The vine, the grapes were something that were going to be made later on. And they are, they show up after the flood. Whether they were there before, we don't know. But there's no grapes and there's no alcohol. You can't have beer in the garden. Why can't you? Because beer is made from grain. Grain plants are out in the land. There's no bread in the garden. No donuts in the garden. That's why we got to get out of the garden, man. You've got to grow up. Get out there. There aren't any donut trees in the garden. So you've got you've to get out. Get out where the, where the bread is, you see. And to make bread you've got to take the olives from the garden and the grain from the land and combine them, and then you make bread and donuts, okay? But even there, we haven't gotten to the grapes yet. So you don't have beer, you don't have grapes because you're in the garden. And the Nazarite is telling us that. He's telling us we're still back with Adam in the garden, okay? We still haven't gotten into the Noahic kingdom time where the grapes and the booze are. The removal of the old glory here and putting it into the glory fire is parallel to coming to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, passing through death, and being raised in a new world, able to drink wine. Okay, think about that. God had said to Adam, you're going to eat of this tree sooner or later, and the day you eat of it you will die, but you'll come to life again with new glory. That had already happened when Eve was made from his side. Adam went into deep sleep. God pulled his rib out from him and he didn't even wake up. That's almost death. And it's a word that means death sleep that's used there. And then he comes up and he's glorified because the woman is the glory of the man. Okay, That's going to happen again when you come to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All the good stuff you've done is going to die. Then you'll get to start over again. But it's in a better world. You can drink wine All the good stuff you did as a Nazarite, we're going to cut it off and put it in the fire and burn it up. But then you come to life again, start growing new hair, and you can drink wine. Which would you rather have? Keep that old hair or cut it off and get to have some wine? Well, I think we know the answer to that. Give me that razor, man. You'll drink to that. That's right. All right, so now there are three phases of this in history. Phase one is priestly. The high priest, palace servant, is the first form of the Nazarite. He's not a, a Nazarite, but he's the model for the Nazarite. Leviticus 21.12. Go back there again. This is important background. We've already been told Leviticus 21.12. See, when God tells them about the Nazarite vow, we've already read in Leviticus about this. So it says, He shall not go out of the sanctuary nor profane the sanctuary of God, for the Nazir of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am Yahweh. Okay, that's the refrain in this part of uh, Leviticus. I am Yahweh. You be holy, you stay right where you are in terms of how holy you are because I am Yahweh and I put you there. The Nazir, this says consecration of the messiah oil that makes him a Messiah. The Nazir makes him a Messiah. Was Samson a Messiah? Oh yeah. All the judges were, the Holy Spirit came upon them, Mashiach, and made the Messiahs. Now the oil is on the high priest. The Nazir of the messiah oil is on him. Though the priest is not to wear his hair long, Ezekiel 44.20, this is the only occurrence of this Hebrew word for lock, locks of the hair, other than number six, five. So that indicates that priests were not allowed to take the Nazirite vow. If you were a priest, you could not become a Nazirite. You already had a job, Okay. You're already out there killing things. You're killing animals that represent people. You're killing animals that represent people's sons. You're killing animals that represent the Son who is going to come into the world. You're killing animals that remind people of the Son of Abraham who was substituted by those animals. You've already got a job. You've already got a holy war job. And you're conducting the holy war in the sanctuary by killing animals and bringing them to the Lord. You're fighting the fight in the sanctuary. So even though the priests are a whole lot like Nazarites and the high priest is the model for the Nazarite with his consecrated head and his crown and all the rest of it, they're not supposed to go off and add to themselves a Nazarite vow and go out and fight in battle. Which sort of means, you know, if you're a minister of the gospel, you're not supposed to run for political office, doesn't it? You've already got a job. Your job is in the sanctuary. Okay? That, we have the whole tradition, don't we? Clergymen aren't supposed to run for political office. We had somebody in our midst do that about 20 years ago, and it didn't work. <laughs> and he was sorry later on. He said, that, that was a big mistake. I shouldn't have done that. See? Because you've already got a calling here. You can't add this other one on it. So, clergymen are not supposed to take up arms and fight in battle. Because we have this battle. okay, We raise up others to do so if you are in the ministry. So I, I think that that's what, that's what is implied here. The priest is not to allow the locks of his hair to grow long, so he's not to become a Nazarite, because he already is one in a sense. Sir, this, the armor of the high priest shows him as a holy warrior fighting the garden fight in the sanctuary. I mentioned that, but I'll just remind you, of course, the breastplate that he has on here, the, the stuff he's dressed in is armor. And when you get to Ephesians 6 and it says taking on the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation, that language is all picking up from the high priest's garb. Okay. The high priest, he's already a holy warrior. The removal of the high priest's glory garments and the glory flower. Okay, remind you, this metal plate, golden plate up here is called a flower. It's called the blossom. Okay? Yeah, we don't translate it right. So, we don't get all these things. But what is, in the, what is in the garden? In the garden are flowers and trees. And the high priest is in the garden. He's in the sanctuary. And he has a flower up here. And it says, Holy to the Lord. That's His flower. But on the Day of Atonement, on the Day of Coverings, He takes that flower off, the golden flower, and He takes His glory garments off. That's parallel to shaving the head. And He puts on just white garments, and He does His work, and then He puts back on the garments. The restoration of those garments at the end of the annual rite is parallel to the Nazarite's entrance into a new world after he fights his battle. But I think there's a lot of parallels here between what the high priest does all year long and taking it all off, being doing his big thing and then putting it back on. Is very parallel. That's his form of it. And that's the first phase of the Nazarite war is in the sanctuary. Phase two is kingly. The warrior Nazarite is the second form, fighting the Cain and Abel type battle in the land. Judges 5 verse 2. I always ask when I'm overseas what this says in foreign Bibles. Judges 5 verse 2 in the New American Standard Bible says that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, blessed the Lord. So I was in Poland and I said, what does yours say? And it says, oh, that that the leaders grew their hair long. That the people volunteered. I'm in Russia and I say, what does yours say? Oh, that the people grew their hair long. That the people volunteered. And of course, if you look in the margin of your Bible, it says that locks hung loose in Israel. That the people volunteered. See, our translators just will not give it to us the real way. Yes. What does it mean? Deborah says... All the men took the Nazarite vow. They were all growing their hair. They were a whole army of Nazarites. And that's what she's praising them for, for taking the holy war vow and fighting it. Uh, That's the opening phrase there. But see, it's obscured in our translations. They just think we're too dumb to understand that, so they take it out. Well, Samson is the next one. And of course, Samson, when he cut his hair off, it didn't go to the Lord, it went to Delilah. That's the big sin here. The hair is to be taken off and given to the Lord. In his case, it was never to be taken off till he died. And in his death, it would be given to the Lord. But he let Delilah take it off. Now that's, that's an act of Nazaridolatry, idolatry <laughs> where you let someone else have the hair. That was his big sin. But then the hair grew back. And he received his power back. In fact, maybe even new power. And what he did at the end was greater than anything he'd done in his life. That just occurs to me. I didn't put it in the text. So let me just remind us that it says that. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Now you see, there he's offering his hair. And he bent with all of his strength, so the house fell on the lords and all the people who were in it. This is sixteen verse thirty. If you want to write it down, Judges sixteen thirty. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. The 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 new hair that grows on the other side is even more glorious. Well, David has taken the Nazarite vow in First Samuel twenty one. It's an important passage because it shows us again the parallel between the. Nazarites, and the priests. 1 Samuel 21, And David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? The Ahimelech uh, has got a picture of the political situation here. He knows that Saul is after David and he's scared. Rightly so. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter this is all very indirectly true in that Jonathan has told him to do things and Jonathan is a crown prince and all that. And he said to me, Let no one know anything about this matter on which I'm sending you, with which I've commissioned you, and I've directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? What is under your hand? Let me have five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The prince answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread under my hand. But there is the showbread, consecrated bread, if only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, "Surely women have been kept to us previously from when I'm set out, I mean we've been on this trip here, and the vessels of the young men are holy are holy. You're under a vow. And just keeping yourselves from women doesn't make you holy. No, there's a, there's a vow here even though it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him show bread. There was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread on the place when it was taken away. So this is a Sabbath day because it's the day the bread is swapped out. Now Jesus refers to this, doesn't He? He and His disciples are going through the grain field and they're getting grains... And the Pharisees complain, and Jesus says, Hey, I'm the new David, and these are my new Nazarites, and they're entitled to have holy bread because they're with me. So uh, here we see David and his men under this vow, and we also see that sometimes in the, if it's a matter of fighting a battle in holy war, you have to keep yourselves from women. Now that is told us in the in Deuteronomy. There is to be no sex during battle, so you cannot engage in rape. Okay? What did the Soviet army do when they went into Eastern Europe to save Eastern Europe from the Nazis? They raped all the women. That was the command given by the Roman generals. Rape all the women. So if you go to the Museum of Terror in Uh, in Budapest. They talked to you about how the soldiers came through. They grabbed all the women in the backs of trucks, raped them, and there were 60,000 children born illegitimate nine months later as a result. And they did this everywhere they went, which is why the Estonians and the other Eastern Europeans don't really like the Russians very much. And the Serbians were doing the same thing uh, in Kosovo and other places. This, This is an ancient technique to humble and demoralize people. Well, Israel is not allowed to do anything like that. In fact, if you bring a war bride back, you have to wait a whole month, right? So, boy, it's a totally different attitude toward this whole business of sex and war. Of course, another example of this is Uriah the Hittite. He's out there, whether he's taken the Nazarite vow or not, the ark is in the field, he's not going to sleep with his wife till the battle's over. Well, in this case, David says the men are holy, okay? They're not just warriors on a war camp. They're holy, and they're on the same level as the priest. Priests can eat the bread. Nazarites can eat the bread. Then we have the great anti-Nazarite, Absalom. In the literary structure of Samuel, Samson at the beginning of Samuel is kind of matched by Absalom at the end of Samuel as the great reverse and this was mentioned yesterday, but Absalom is showing himself to be the true hero. David is old. This is, this is almost the end of David's reign, okay? So David's in his late 60s, and we know that he was becoming uh, impotent and cold at night and all the other stuff that we find out uh, later on, but uh, Absalom is showing up at the gate and and uh, he's saying, if you've got problems, bring them to me because David's too busy to deal with you. And he's got a bunch of men with him as chariots and they ride before him and he's putting on all the glory like the king and he grows his hair every year like a big Nazarite and he shaves it every year in a big ceremony, he weighs it out so everybody can see just how much glory and how much he's done for the Lord every year because it's signified and how much power he has. Hey, you know... I'm stronger than the ordinary guy. My hair grows an inch an hour. Okay, so he's got all this hair. And of course, remember, that's how God kills him. God takes his hair, all right, you know, and he takes it up in a tree and he's hanged on a tree. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. Absalom was riding on his mule. The mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, his head caught fast in the oak, so he was hanging between heaven and earth. A type of Christ or an anti antitype of christ, okay, the pseudo nazarite, then there's the prophetic form of the Nazarite, the prophetic Nazarite is the third form fighting the war for marital purity and faithfulness in the world to keep people from compromise that's what the sons of God did with the daughters of men before the flood. they compromised that's the issue in the third phase of history when we 're going out among the nations of the world when we're dealing with the uh, the strangers, then we have to be careful not to compromise. Samuel, Nazarite, kills Agag. But primarily what Samuel does is he builds the nation up. As a Nazarite, he teaches them. With Elijah, we come to the beginning of the prophetic time. And thus, for those of you who were new, or and to remind everybody else, we have the judgment on the land. Three years of drought, I would say that all the hair that was growing out of the land, all the bushes and all the trees, died. God scalped the land for three years. And then it rained. And then the land would start to grow again, and then immediately Jezebel murdered the hundred prophets who had been kept in the cave. Elijah goes back out into the wilderness, says, all the prophets have been killed. I'm the only one left. What are we going to do? And he goes out 40 days and 40 nights to Sinai, and God meets him like He did with Moses, and He says, Go, and when you have returned, you shall anoint... Hazael, king over Syria. Now, see, that's the new bizarre, strange thing to messiahify. For the first time, God extends his claim to a pagan nation. Before the Queen of Sheba came to visit Solomon, Hiram came to visit David. Now God is reaching out and starting to lay claim on these other nations, and He says, I want you to go and pour the holy anointing oil, the same stuff that you pour on the kings of Israel, I want you to put it on Hazael and make him king over Syria. This is the beginning of the claim on the, on the international claim, and it's the first, the first initial phase of the new covenant. Okay, The new international covenant starts in its little beginning phase here. And so Elijah initiates this new remnant covenant and he starts this warfare. Now we see that Elijah is carrying on holy war throughout here, but of course the passage that shows us something about his Nazareticity is in 2 Kings chapter 1. And that's where the king um, Ahaziah falls down to the ground. Out of his upper room, there's a whole bunch of up and down stuff in these two chapters here, which it would be a lot of fun to explore, but he falls down, and so he sends messengers to beal zebub, which means the Lord okay Baal zebub that just means Lord or husband uh but it's the word Baal, okay? Baal-zebub, god of Ekron. But the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up to meet the messengers of the king of Assyria and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Akron? Now therefore, says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed on which you've gone up, but you will surely die. The messengers returned to him and they said, A man came to meet us, And he told us these things in verse 7. The king says, What kind of man was he who came to meet you? And they answered him, He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound around his loins. No, they didn't say that. They said, He is a bale of hair. A lord of hair. Well, if he is a bale of hair, a Lord of hair, that means he's crowned with hair. So what does that mean? It means he's a Nazarite, which kind of stands to reason anyway. Once you get the idea of holy war and Nazarites, it's pretty easy to see that Elijah and Elisha are Nazarites, like Paul was, and like some other people were. Okay? But Lord of hair is what it says here in verse 8. He was a Lord of hair. So we've got this war between Beelzebub and and the Baal of hair. Okay, that's the contest here. And remember, the Nazarite is an ish, a flame. His hair is going to go into the fire. He's associated with fire. And if anything, he's a lord of fire. And so, Elijah Elijah sends fire down, and we have these puns here. Verse 9 Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and he went up to him, and he was sitting on the top of the hill, and he said to him, O Ish of God. Remember, there's a bunch of different words for man, but he doesn't say, Man of God, O Adam of God, O Enosh of God, or any of the other words for man. He says, O Ish of God, O flame of God. The king says, come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, If I'm a flame of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So you begin to see some of the subtleties involved here. The Nazarite is somebody who has the fire of God This is important after Pentecost because that's what Paul has. He has the fire of God. And it's in the book of Revelation where armies of Nazarites breathing out fire are fighting against each other. Elijah, the fire lord, the lord of fire, the lord of hair. Well, in chapter 2 then, we come to Elijah and Elisha. Chapter 2. It says, when the Lord was about to take up, we got this up and down stuff again, Elijah, by a windstorm to heaven, Elijah said to Elisha from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. And Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself lives, I will not leave you. Then the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel, So there's good prophets at Bethel, and there's bad prophets at Bethel. And we're going to see there's a war between the two theological seminaries. There's Baal Theological Seminary, and there's Yahweh Theological Seminary at Bethel. The sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that Yahweh will take your master from over you today? Nope. Look in the margin. He will take your master from off of your head. He'll take him off your head today. And he says, yeah, I know, shut up. And Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay here. I've got to go to Jericho. And he says, no, I won't. And so the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elijah, Elisha and said, do you know that Yahweh will take your master from off of your head today? Now this gets into this head covering business and one person being the head covering of another person, which is in the background of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 or 10 or wherever it is. Eleven. Okay. So, he's going to be taken off of his head. The long hair that's on Elisha is related to Elijah being his head covering. Well, he he asked to see it. He says, let a double portion of your spirit be on me. The Nazarite cuts his hair off and grows new hair in the kingdom where he can have wine. He has more spirit afterwards. And he says, well, maybe. So in verse 11, it says, As as it came about as they were going along and talking, behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire. What happens to the Nazarites? Hair, it's taken into the fire. It separated them, and Elijah went up in a whirlwind into the sky. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father chariots of Israel and its horsemen. He tore his, took hold of his clothes and tore them in two pieces. Now look, people think Elijah went up to heaven without dying. No, no. You don't tear your clothes if somebody goes up to heaven without dying. There's, there's no hint of that. In fact, Elijah is just like Moses. Okay, Moses died and they couldn't find where he was buried. Elijah dies, but they're not going to find where he is. But Elisha is very clear. Tearing his clothes means he understands that this is death. Whatever kind of death it was, it was death. Uh, But the fire comes to take the hair. You see, the work is finished and it's satisfied. Then we've already mentioned this. Elijah comes back. He's a new Joshua. He comes to Jericho. Conquers the city by purifying the water, and then he goes to Bethel, verse 23. He went up from there to Bethel, where the the seminary students had come out to see him, and as he was going on his way, young lads, that means deacons. This is a word that's used for uh, Rehoboam when he's 41 years old, only it says young ones. But uh, it's the word Na'ar, which is used for those who assist with the sacrifices. Many times. So this is, remember there's an idol shrine at Bethel. It's where the calves are. So this is from the calf theological seminary. These are the students from there. They came out of the city and mocked him and said, Go up, bald head. Go up, bald head. Why don't you follow Elijah on up to heaven? Get out of here. Clear out. And they mock him. They mock the death of Elijah by calling him bald. Okay, that's that's what they're making fun of. They're not making fun of the fact that he's a ball guy. Okay, they're making fun of the... F- they're laughing because Elijah has died and the sign of that is that Elisha has had to cut his hair off. And he looked behind him and saw them. He cursed them in Yahweh's name and two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. So in the first conquest, it was bees and hornets who went after the Canaanites. Now... These neo-Canaanites are killed by bears. Well, that's Nazarite warfare. But it's with the tongue, not with the hand. A new prophetic form. John the Baptist is a Nazarite. He comes and says it's not right for you to have your uh, uh, brother's wife. He loses his head. Okay, okay. Harvest of his hair. Jesus, as we've said, is a Nazarite. He takes a Nazarite vow and does the holy war work. Paul takes a Nazarite vow. In Acts 18.18, we see this. Acts 18.18, Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. With him were Priscilla and Aquila in Cancria, he was having his hair cut because he was keeping a vow. Now, why did he cut his hair before arriving in Jerusalem? Okay, in verse 22, he comes to Jerusalem. It's almost hidden in this verse. When he sailed, when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. that, that is the return to Jerusalem and then back. Okay, uh, seems. Well, cutting his hair before arriving in Jerusalem indicates he must have come in contact with death in Cancriah and started over even though he was unable to do the rites of number 6. Now this brings up the fact that in the covenant after the return from exile, there are these modifications in the law. And we don't know exactly what they were. But if you were, the law says three times a year every male Israelite is to appear before the Lord. Well, if you're a Jew living in Rome, do you have to go to Jerusalem to the three feasts every year? How are you going to do that? You'd be traveling all the time. That's impossible. And I've asked New Testament scholars about this and they give me this blank look. But obviously what they, what they say to me is, what the fellows at Westminster Seminary, as I was chatting with them about it, they said, yeah, obviously there's some modifications in how these laws were understood when you get to this new international time. But we don't know. All we can do is assume that, uh, you know, maybe once in a lifetime you had to come to Jerusalem or something. We, we don't know uh, how they were trying to apply it. But they had to use wisdom to apply the basic law into new situations. So we're already having to do what the New Testament requires us to do, which is to apply the law into new situations. Well, Paul has got to cut his hair off because he's come in contact with a dead body apparently, but he can't immediately go to Jerusalem and do these rituals that are part of that. How does that work? I don't know. What's clear is he regarded his missionary journeys as holy war campaigns. Okay, that's what's important. Okay, we see the prophetic form as being holy war campaigns. Similarly, in Acts 21, at the end of the third missionary journey, he's apparently involved in another Nazarite vow for the third missionary journey. There we find that uh, James and the brethren say to him, Look, we have four men who are under a vow. Take them and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses in order that they may shave their heads. We will know there's nothing to be to the things that they have been told about you. Uh, and then verse 26, Paul took the men and the next day purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until sacrifice was offered for each one of them. And when seven days were almost over, Jews from Asia stirred up trouble. Well, this is for purification. It seems that the men had been defiled and were having to renew their vows. Paul participates in this paying their expenses. Why was Paul being purified? Don't know. Did he also have a vow that had been defiled? Or was he completing his vow and doing it along with these guys? We don't know. What we do see is he had himself taken another Nazarite vow in connection with this third missionary journey. And that's how he's viewing these things. Two other final points here. This was mentioned the other day. In the book of Revelation, Nazarite warriors are behind the scenes, fairly clearly behind the scenes in the Judaizing army in chapter 9. We have the army of the Judaizers, as I understand it, uh, in the fifth trumpet. Trumpet. Revelation 9, a fifth angel sounded, I saw a star from heaven that had fallen to the earth. We've already seen that. Its name is Wormwood and it falls into the springs of water, which means it falls into the temple. It means that Satan takes over the temple. The springs come out of the temple. That's from Ezekiel 47. The rivers and the springs come out of the temple. Wormwood, Satan has taken over the temple. This is the star that's fallen to the earth. The key to the bottomless pit was given to him. The temple is a ladder to heaven. But when Satan takes it over, it becomes a stairway down to the bottomless pit. And he opened up the bottomless pit and smoke went up out of the pit like smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened. Out of the smoke, smoke came forth locusts. Um, we read about them in verse 8. It says they had hair like the hair of women. Teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had a king over them who was the king of the abyss, Abaddon and Apollyon. Well, that's the the enemy army coming out of the temple, the Judaizers. And they are met by the army from the Euphrates, which is an army of Abrahams, an army of Davids who are like lions and who breathe out Pentecostal fire and who fight against them. And we see them in the sixth seal. Finally, in terms of kind of a survey of Nazarites, I think the references to superfluous vows in the New Testament where Jesus says, let your yea be yea and stop swearing vows, and the references to super apostles and things like that, probably reflects the popularity of the Nazarite vow among hypocritical Jews at this time. Milgram in his commentary on numbers, and I'm just going to read you a little bit of what he says, so that you get a picture of it, and I think it fills in some New Testament data for us. He tells us, The popularity of the Nazarite vow at the close of the second temple period, that's, that's Jesus' day, the day of the first century, the close of the t- second temple period. The popularity of the vow at that time can be explained by the relative ease of fulfilling it. By then the rabbis had reduced the term to 30 days so that you could have that short a vow if you wanted. Unless you specified otherwise. More importantly, the cost for the terminal sacrifice could be assumed by others, which Paul does, you see, whereas all other vows had to be fulfilled by the votary himself. Thus Rabbi Simeon ben Shittah split the cost of the sacrifices for 300 Nazarites with King Genai, and King Agrippa arranged for a very considerable number of Nazarites to be shorn according to Josephus. In like manner, the Apostle Paul assumed the cost for the sacrifices of four contaminated Nazarites. 300 Nazarites Nazarites apparently were all over the place. We even learn of Nazarite women. See, the Bible says a woman can take the Nazarite vow, but we don't seem to have any in the Bible that we know of that are clearly there anyway. But we learn of Nazarite women in the diaspora where the Jews are out in the empire. Some by name, for instance, Queen Helena of Abiadne, Abni, Berenike, sister of King Agrippa II, and Miriam the Tadmorite. The great numbers of Nazarites can be inferred from the previously mentioned texts. He's got all these references to the Mishnah here. That records the appearance of hundreds of Nazarites simultaneously before Rabbi Simeon ben Shittah. Some of the early Christians were also Nazarites, again in Acts. It's clear that the rabbis frowned upon the Nazarite state both because of its ascetic tendencies. Remember we were talking about this, you know, commanding not to marry and abstain from foods and stuff like that. They say that people were taking these Nazarite vows and including this kind of stuff. This was common at the time. So the New Testament fits with this. The rabbis opposed this because of its ascetic tendencies and because it had degenerated through the use of wagers. One might wager, I'll be a Nazarite if such and such happens. So you just take these light vows, you know. Uh, Last quotation, Simon the Just was of the opinion that people make the Nazarite vow in a fit of temper, impetuously, flippantly, and since they vow in a fit of temper, they will ultimately come to regret it. Okay. So that, that's from Numbers Rabbi 10 7. So I, that's our survey of Nazarites, taking us into the New Testament, I think gives us some context for some of the stuff in the Apostles about ascetics, super apostles coming, uh, those who went out from us who were not of us, as John says in 1 John. So.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.